there were earthquakes, you know, the, the psychological kind in his life, in the world. Shut up already! Damn! Tell me who in this house know about the quake? I mean, really? This is Prince, the story of Sign of the Times, brought to you by The Current in collaboration with the Prince Estate, Paisley Park, and Warner Records. But if you ain't hip to the rare house quake, shut up already. Hello and welcome to the third episode of Story of Sign of the Times. I'm Andrea Swenson, and if you're just joining us, I'm an author and a radio host at The Current in Minneapolis, and I'm also one of the writers who contributed liner notes to the expanded reissue of Sign of the Times. This episode tells the story of an earthquake, an actual earthquake, not just a housequake, and the composition of the song Sign of the Times. It kind of blew my mind to learn about this, and it's given me a whole new appreciation for a song that already felt so evocative to me, with lyrics that capture the tone and the tenor of 1986 when it was written, and that also feels so resonant in this moment in American history. We spent the first two episodes taking a really intimate look at what was going on in Prince's life in 1986, both in terms of his relationship to his band, The Revolution, and his relationship with his fiancée at the time, Susanna Melvoin. In this episode, we're going to start to zoom out a little bit and talk about the world around Prince in this era and some of the exterior forces that shaped his work on an album that would become an iconic signpost of a turbulent era in American life. We'll pick up the story with the release of Prince's second film, Under the Cherry Moon, which was also his directorial debut. Purple Rain was such a smash success that expectations for this movie were also really high. But as soon as it hit theaters in July 1986, it became clear that this was not going to be the career-defining film Prince hoped it would be. One person who worked for Prince back then actually told me that it was referred to among his staff as under the cherry bomb. Oh, no, that was tough. That was very tough. This is Lenny Warrenker, who signed Prince to Warner Brothers Records back in 1977 and was president of the label in the 80s. It was tough on him. We went to a preview somewhere in Pasadena, and it was awful. You know, people were laughing, and he was sitting right behind me. And I was thinking as this thing was started to unfold that the vibe was really bad. And I, I would look around casually to, just to see him. And finally, about three quarters of the way through, halfway through, I looked around and he was gone. He wasn't one to reminisce about the stuff that didn't work. This is Susanna Melvoin. How I saw him manifest that kind of stuff was work harder. So... He may have been less communicative, although he wasn't the most communicative guy in the world, but he would have been even more remote. He would have gone more internal and disappeared into the studio, which I'm sure that's exactly what he did. I didn't hear much of... He would never, actually... I would never heard him say, you know, I'm disappointed, or this didn't work, or... I expected something else and it didn't happen. And oh, well, like he just didn't have that kind of language. That didn't come out of his mouth. He may have thought it, 
but the way he dealt with it was to be more remote with humans, the people, and go create more. On to the next. Prince and the Revolution held the release party for Under the Cherry Moon in Sheridan, Wyoming, where a fan had won a date with Prince through a contest on MTV. That is a surreal story that surely needs an entire podcast of its own. Just two days after that premiere, and the day after the movie debuted nationwide, Wendy Melvoin of the Revolution remembers arriving at the McNichols Arena in Denver and hearing Prince working on a brand new sound. I walked into Soundcheck and Prince was playing Sign of the Times through the um, monitors and playing his live guitar track, just testing out that that drum rhythm. In, and I was like mesmerized and it's like, oh my God, we're going to another place. There was a month-long break scheduled between that July 3rd show at the McNichols Arena in Denver and Prince and the Revolution's next shows at Madison Square Garden. And Prince would spend most of that month shuttling between his home studio in Chanhassen and Sunset Sound in Los Angeles. So did you have a favorite space to record with him? Sunset Sound, without a doubt. What was it about that studio that kept you returning to that space? The sound out of the room. The sound out of that room was unmatched. And quite frankly, Prince learned that board that was in there. It was an API board built by a guy by the name of Demidio. And Prince knew how to use it so well. I would just watch his hand on the faders and watch his hand on dialing in the EQ on. There's, there's a famous three band dials on an API EQ setting. And I, I have a seared in memory of his hands dialing in EQs. He just knew how to use that and he could splice tape. You know, people don't do that anymore. You know, I mean, he could cut tape. He, he ran that room like it was just, like he was filing his nails. But frankly, he would file his nails and mix. Lisa Coleman also spent countless hours at Sunset Sound with Prince. It must have been the basketball hoop in the courtyard. Because <laughs> he always kicked everybody's ass at horse. By the next year, Prince would soon have a recording and production complex of his own with Paisley Park, where everything he wanted was under one roof, including multiple recording studios, a soundstage for filming and rehearsal, and even a performance venue. But in the early years of his career, he spent a lot of time jetting between various locations, sometimes on a whim, depending on what spaces and tools he needed. In 1986, he was often choosing between working in his home studio in Chanhassen, a nearby warehouse where he held band rehearsals and captured live recordings, and flying to his favorite studio, Sunset Sound, in Los Angeles. As Susan Rogers told me, in those days... It wasn't as simple as dropboxing recording files back and forth either. His staff was constantly running to the airport to shuttle master tapes to wherever Prince was. 
that's how you had to do it. So if we had tapes at home in Minneapolis and we were out at Sunset Sound, and this is exactly what happened with the song Slow Love and I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man, he decides he wants them. Of course, you can send it FedEx and it'll get there overnight, but with him, that's not even fast enough. So what we would do is we'd send it air cargo. So someone in Minneapolis, a member of his staff, would box it up, wrap it up properly, label it properly, drive to the airport, go right to the air cargo counter and send that package on the next flight that goes to Los Angeles. And then some crew member who works for him in LA, usually someone who worked for his management, go out to LAX, get that tape and drive it to Sunset Sound. That's what you could do when you had a lot of money, which he had in those days. Um, You'd put it on the next flight. He did that once with spare ribs. He was in in Los Angeles, and he loved a place called Rudolph's Barbecue in Minneapolis. He loved Rudolph's Barbecue. So he had someone go down there and and get just a big meal and pack it all up and put it on a plane and send it out to Los Angeles. Prince had become such a regular presence at Sunset Sound by the mid-'80s that he would roll in with a semi-truck full of gear, including scarves, candles, a workout station, and a king-size bed with a satin bedspread, and take over Studio 3 for weeks or months at a time. Yeah, definitely. Candles and drapes, you know, tapestries, and just vibe it up. Because studios can be pretty dry when you first walk in and put on the the bright lights. And so it was important. Yeah. And he put a bed in there or something. There'd always be a place to lie down and either, you know, just write and hang out. There was always a vibe to his music that there was something going on behind it. It wasn't just the song, you know, it was three-dimensional and there was like what is he doing in there? It's like you could imagine him doing things while he's singing. There was just a feeling in an air that there was something going on. And usually because there was. Everybody Want What They Don't Got, recorded at Sunset Sound on July 12th, 1986. Looking at the track list for the super deluxe reissue of Sign of the Times, it becomes clear just how fruitful this month was for Prince. There are eight new tracks being released from the vault that Prince recorded in July 1986 alone. The same month that he wrote and recorded his era-defining song, Sign of the Times, Joy and Repetition, which he would release on Graffiti Bridge, and the cross. When he was recording, he could record two or three songs in a day, and he did. That's Dwayne Tudal, author and senior researcher for the Prince Estate Archives. I think the cool thing about Prince is he had so much that he recorded in between projects that it's almost wrong not to know what was there because it it conveys where he was. And, and with a project like this, we organized it in chronological order because that's how Prince 
was recording it. This is what Prince was going through. So you can hear, oh, he's happy here. Okay, he's going sad here. And you can kind of get, this is his daily diary. His his work was his diary in many ways. The guy who didn't do a lot of interviews, his talking was done through his music. And what he recorded was what he was feeling, what he was thinking. And, and if he's mad, he did a sad, mad song. If he was upset, you know, he'd do that. If he's in love, he'd do a love song. On the same day he recorded Everybody Want What They Don't Got, Prince would also record his most explicitly religious song to date, The Cross. Susan Rogers remembers that recording session clearly. Black day, stormy night No love, no hope inside That, as I recall, I don't remember the exact day of the week, but I seem to remember that it was one of our Sunday songs. That was the term I had for the songs that were... Asking for redemption. They would often follow songs where he had been blatantly sexual or lustful. So when he would do something that was really lustful, like an erotic city from the earlier era, like We Can which he ultimately changed to We Can Funk, when he would do something like that, there would be a backlash and he'd do a song like God or a song like The Cross or... Um, or temptation, or the latter. So it was one of those where I thought, hey, he's feeling guilty about something. And <laughs> at Sunset Sound, I mic'd up the drums, and I, I do remember about that recording. He went so fast, so fast, in fact, that the drums on the cross speed up pretty badly. And this was one of those rare, rare times where I thought, oh, this won't work. I mean, it's pretty bad, speeding up like that. And he didn't care. It served his purpose. I can't think of, certainly working as a producer with other artists, there's no way we'd let that take fly. You'd redo it. But when he would play acoustic drums on his music, this is just mind-blowing to think about and realize, but he's listening to nothing. No headphones, no click. He's playing the drums with the full arrangement of the song in his head. The vocals, the breaks, the fills. He's playing the drum track de novo, from the new, apropos of nothing. And that was one of those songs. And then he came in and did the other instrumentation, one instrument at a time. An extraordinary piece, extraordinary piece that emerges from this head of his. just started getting into a groove at Sunset Sound when natural forces took over. As those who lived on the West Coast in 1986 might recall, this was a particularly dramatic time to be in L.A. A series of earthquakes and aftershocks hit the area that July, including a 6.0 magnitude quake emanating from Palm Springs on July 8th and a 5.3 magnitude earthquake that hit the ocean off the coast of San Diego in the early morning hours of July 13th. 
we were staying at the Bellagio Hotel and we experienced this earthquake. Here's Susanna Melvoin again, who has a constant presence in Prince's life at this time. And he did not, he did not like this earthquake. It scared the out of him. For somebody who's so in control, that was just, you know, witnessing the power of the planet and the universe and all of it happening at once. It was just too much. And he was like, we got to get out of here. But as we were getting ready, Gilbert came in with the newspaper. And in the front page of the newspaper, it said, AIDS epidemic, out of control. It was the front cover of the LA Times. It was such a dramatic moment because he took it and he looked at the front page and he was like, something's happening to the world. You know, there was some moment where he just, all of it just clicked. So here are some of the headlines from the July 13th, 1986 edition of the LA Times. Star Wars leads all defense costs, an article about Ronald Reagan's anti-missile program. New AIDS findings to alert a world at risk, an article about an international AIDS conference in Paris, France. Back home in Minneapolis, the Star Tribune was running a series of articles covering a murder trial, and the suspects were in a gang called the Disciples. Prince and Susanna hopped a plane from L.A. to Minneapolis that Sunday, and the very next day, Prince flew back to Sunset Sound. By Wednesday, he had finished his new song. And Francis skinny man died of a big disease with a little name. By chance his girlfriend came across a needle and soon she did the same. At home there were 17-year-old boys and their idea fun. Is being in a gang called the Disciples High on Crack Toting a machine gun And, you know, when I, when I heard it, I was like, boy, did he tap in. Boy, does he know how to use fear and uncertainty and loss of control and knows how to channel that. Listen to that song. I was awestruck by that. I was awestruck by that. I certainly didn't do any of that. I just shook at my knees. I'm like, oh, this is so scary. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know what they say about musical artists, especially prolific ones, everything influences you. Everything. And for a man who was on output, to a much higher degree than most other artists, who was making more than he was taking in, he would he would get a lot of mileage out of inspiration. So when an unusual event would happen, like an earthquake or maybe a, a headline in the newspaper about AIDS or the Challenger explosion and things like that, when something unusual would happen, um, that would serve as inspiration for new pieces. Uh, very readily for him because he pretty much didn't do anything other than make music. What was your impression of it as it was as it was being composed in the studio? I knew that he was searching for his next stylistic gesture. His music was evolving. He was well aware that rap and hip hop were more than just fads. That rap and hip hop were now stylistic trends that had a purchase on popular music and we're gonna it's gonna go for a while he 
had said back when we were the Flying Cloud Drive uh, warehouse, back in the days of Around the World in a Day, he had said, the future of music is going to be just bass and drums and vocals. He was saying that in the, in the early 80s. So I believe with Sign of the Times, with that stripped-down approach, he was not trying to compete with rap or hip-hop. Not at all. He would have made the beat different if he had been. But he was trying to be part of a trend of music that um, distinctly separated melody and rhythm and didn't work so hard on harmony being the glue to hold those elements together. Just melody, just rhythm. Let the harmony be implied from the melody or, uh, or not. One of the first people to hear the song Sign of the Times outside of Prince's immediate circle was Lenny Warrenker, president of Warner Brothers Records. Sign of the Times was interesting. The first time I heard it, I had a meeting with Prince and Bob Cavallo at Bob's office. And um, Prince wanted to play me this jazz record that he had done. It was good. And it was fun having Prince take me through the record because he He'd have all these observations based on the chord changes and the vibe and all that stuff. So it was a lot of fun. When he was the artist, he was fabulous. He was just fabulous. And he'd say, I stole that from Fleetwood Mac, or I did that, or whatever. But always fun and and, uh, even self-effacing to some extent. So um, Bob walked in the office and he said to Prince, why don't you play Lenny Son at the Times, the single? And so he said, okay, because, you know, he didn't like to let go of things until he was ready, but he did it. And it totally freaked me out. When I heard the record, I thought, oh, my God. He's gone to another, just another zone. Unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. And I looked at him, and, and in those days, you could say things like, you know, that's going to be a number one record, which I usually never said because nobody knows, but I just felt it. And I'm not good at holding back if I believe something. So I just said, that's a number one record. And it was. We've been spending most of this series so far dialed into Prince and his immediate surroundings. And I want to take a moment to widen the lens and talk more about what was happening in the world around him. I knew just who I wanted to talk to about this, too. I'm uh, Daphne Brooks. I teach at Yale University. I am the William R. Keenan Jr. Professor of African American Studies, American Studies, Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies, and as of July, music. Daphne also wrote a powerful essay for the liner notes for the Sign of the Times reissue. It's ironic to call 86 and the 80s simpler times, (laughs) but given the twinned pandemics that we're living through right now, It was just a different way in which all sorts of, you know, diseases permeating the American body politic were manifesting themselves. So, you know, Ronald Reagan takes office in 1980. We now have the tapes in which he refers to African leaders as monkeys. So if there was ever any question of Ronald Reagan's racism, which anyone who's 
African American and Latinx and Asian American and indigenous from California and like myself being African American from California, um, knew it very well. But the Reagan Bush regime was very much designed to restructure the Republican Party finally and resolutely around um, racial polarization and, and anti-Black structural reform, eviscerating the advances made by the civil rights freedom movement. And then, of course, in Prince's opening lines to Sign of the Times, he reminds us of the fact that we were in a pandemic then. The AIDS epidemic, um, which disproportionately, and again, it's eerie to use these words, disproportionately affecting Black and brown neighborhoods as well as queer communities, is very present um, in the universe. The the strangeness of the 80s, though, and this is kind of the world that we've inherited, too, is that on the one hand, you have all of these very pronounced violences towards marginalized peoples, but the gains in um, civil rights representation lead to a cultural revolution such that you have, for the first time, a multiplicity of crossover, quote-unquote crossover, African-American pop superstars of course, the purple one, but of also, you know, the trifecta of Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston. And then there's also Lionel Richie who's hanging out there, which people forget that, but that was, this was a big and very controversial move for him to, to, to transition out of the, out of the Commodores into Lady. You know, there's the boom in um, black independent cinema. So it's a very dizzying kind of moment. And in some ways, you know, culture is both possibility, right? On the other hand, it can actually distract you from seeing the ways that the police state is designed to forever repress Black and brown peoples. I think that Prince really was so mindful of the the nuances of those kinds of the paradoxical ways that Black life was unfolding at that moment. People were slow to understand the radical political life of Prince's music, right? It was easy to talk about the jouissance of his sound, you know, that's deep, resistant eroticism and the pleasures of a kind of bohemian blackness that could thrive in the public sphere, right? But those were political statements to say, This is about resisting the narrow definitions of what Blackness is. And if we think ideologically that way, if we can shift our minds to think about how expansive Blackness is, then in the best universe, it means I'm not going to put my knee in your neck for eight plus minutes. That, at the end of the day, is what, you know, his music was really fighting for. Come on, y'all, we got the jam. I would love to hear just a little bit of your personal memory of like hearing Sign of the Times for the first time. Like, how did that hit you when you first heard it? Ah, it hit me like an earthquake being from California. And it was my freshman year 
spring at um, UC Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, Go Bears. So they were they were playing Housequake on the radio. It must have been within the first week that it, we were spinning it. And these sisters had it blasting and their door open and people were doing a soul train line. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, it was that voice. And it was also, we even talked about his, his comedic side, which is so prominent, like master trickster, you know? That song is a compendium of all of his virtuosic trickster aesthetics, including my favorite, my favorite moment. What was that? Aftershock. And if you're from California, that's a real thing. And I just felt like the world was opening up. It was such a sly and buoyant and dangerous sound. And I thought, okay, no more revolution, but another revolution is about to begin. Up next on Prince, the story of Sign of the Times, with most of the songs that would appear on Sign of the Times already recorded, Prince and the Revolution embark on one final tour and play their last show together in Yokohama, Japan. And by the time we were in Yokohama and he destroyed his cloud guitar at the end of Purple Rain, but he did it in a way that was a big you. And we knew it. We just knew it. We just knew it. We get back to our hotel room, and I said to Lisa, I think we're going to get fired. Prince, the story of Sign of the Times is produced by The Current, supported by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, and created in collaboration with the Prince Estate and Warner Records and with their support. This story was written by Andrea Swenson. Anna Wegel is our producer. Thanks to technical director Corey Schreppel, digital producer Jay Gabler, radio production director Derek Stevens, and managing director David Safar. Thanks also to Trevor Guy, Giancarlo Siama, Michael Howe, and Dwayne Tudal. To learn more about The Current, visit thecurrent.org. If you haven't subscribed yet, search for Prince, the story of Sign of the Times on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, to learn more about Prince, visit prince.com. Shut up already. Damn.